All right, let's go. I'm ready. Uh, these, these verses are just a few of the verses that have informed my preaching this morning that are referenced in the third chapter of John. You can go back and look at it and dig a little more later. Uh, Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Write down Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Write down John 7, 50 through 52. John 19, 38 through 42. Those who want a little extra credit, a little extra homework, uh, you can read those verses. And uh, they'll help uh, shape a little bit more of the passage you're going to be looking at today. Today we're going to be looking at John chapter 3. John chapter 3, the, the whole chapter in a sense. And I'm going to narrow in uh, very specifically about one, uh, one part of it. But before we do though, I'm going to say this, then pray, then we're going to get started. Is I want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers who are here. I love my dad. I had a wonderful father. Uh, my father showed me what real love is. My dad only had one goal in life, and that was to be a good father, and he was very, very successful at that, and I miss my dad. And happy Father's Day to you. Here's my Father's Day story. Um, we're a little tired at the Emory House this weekend. My son had surgery three days ago, had his uh, had underbite. They broke his jaw. Uh, really, really, a, a really miserable thing. And uh, the day after the surgery, I went to get him a Frosty so he could eat. And I'm spooning it into his mouth. Quote, Dad, stop. You suck at this. <laughs> I want mom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> he didn't want me to stay there overnight. He didn't want me to feed him. You know, he just wanted me to pay the bill at the hospital. <laughs> you suck. That's a great. He's, do, he's, doing, he's doing, really, doing really well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for this wonderful story that's had a huge impact on my life. And I hope that today I have the capacity and the imagination to open up a new world for all of us through this story. May it do for everyone in this room what it's done for me. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want to talk about today is John chapter 3, and this is probably the one chapter in the Bible that's had the biggest impact on me as a person throughout my entire life. It was John chapter 3 where I first made my connection as a teenager to who God is, who Jesus is, and made a personal decision that I wanted to invite Jesus into my life. And it was upon reading John 3 and having it explained to me that I began my personal journey of faith that's led me here to where I am today. The reason this happened uh, for me was I had some uh, high school friends, some really good guys I used to hang around with, and they called themselves 
uh, born-again Christians. I didn't know what that meant. I grew up in a church that didn't ever talk about what it meant to be born again. Uh, mostly, I attended church with my parents. A lot of it didn't make a lot of sense to me. My minister was a really good person. Uh, love him, and still he's still preaching, actually. Um, but much of what he said didn't really connect with me. But these three teenagers uh, who had, had what they would call a very personal relationship with God, uh, one time I said, tell me, tell me what that means to you. I'd like to know. And then they just said, well, let's get a Bible. So we got a Bible, and we spent about two or three hours together reading through John chapter 3. And at the end of that conversation, I was so powerfully moved by what I discovered by the way they explained the Bible to me in just a really simple way. But at that very moment, I, I finally sort of connected the dots on who Jesus was and, and what he meant to me and actually physically got down on my knees and invited Jesus to be, to be my Lord and Savior. That, that makes an important point about the role and the power that you have in another person's life. You know, I listen to my minister every Sunday, but never really connected. It was just some regular people, some regular guys that shared what their faith meant to them that made a difference in my life. The reality is that for most of you, most of you have more impact on the people around you than I will ever have on the people in your life. You don't have to be a minister, you don't have to be a theologian, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to impact another person's life. Just talk about what God's meant to you. Just talk about what it means to be loved by God and what your faith is like, how God has helped you through hard times, how God has helped you see new things. Talk about the love of God, what it means in your life. And let God do the work. You don't have to convince anybody of anything. Just open the door to your heart and share with another person. And don't worry about getting it right. Just talk. Have a conversation with somebody. It may end up changing their life like it did mine. So I want to share with you then this one verse that really sort of brought it all together. This was the clarifying moment for me. And honestly, it's a really strange verse that would be the verse that went, ah, I get it now verse. Because uh, it's a strange Old Testament reference. But it comes from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And this is the verse that opened my eyes. It said, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, this was, this was a really strange verse that opened up my eyes to what God wanted in my life. This is making a reference to something in the Old Testament. It's referring to a passage from Numbers chapter 21. It's a really strange story where the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness, where the Israelites are bitten by poisonous snakes and they begin to die. Now, what's interesting is God is the one that sends the snakes in because they're complaining about what's happening. Don't complain, right? You get bit by snakes. It's a really strange story. There's a whole other sermon right there, folks. But they're being bit by snakes, and they're dying in the wilderness. And Moses says to God, God, how are we gonna, what are we going to do? How are we going to save our people? Our people are dying. They're being bitten by these poisonous snakes. God says to Moses, what I want you to do is I want you to make a bronze snake and I want you to put it on a pole and tell people to look at the snake on the pole and when they do, 
They will no longer be touched by the sting of death. They will be healed. They will be saved. Strange story. So what is Jesus doing here by making a reference to that story? He's making a powerful point. He's talking about his own death. He's saying there's going to times going to come uh, when I will be lifted up high on a stick. I'll be lifted up high, and when people look upon me, the sting of death will be removed from them. I am going to be taking upon my body and on my life the sting of death, the sting of sin, the sting of suffering, all the evil in the world I'm going to bring upon myself. And I'm going to be lifted up before the whole world. And when I'm lifted up before the whole world, and when people look at me and place their faith in me and believe in me, they will have eternal life, and they will no longer experience the sting of death, suffering, and sin. That was the first time for me I really began to understand what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross. And it was this next verse then that really, really got me there. You've heard this, John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world. The way that God loved the world was not to condemn the world, not to send snakes into the world to punish people, but instead he came himself. That Jesus is the incarnation of God, that, that Jesus in Jesus, we see the unfailing love and goodness of God. In Jesus, we see what God is like. That Jesus came from God, that he is God's son, and that this is how he showed his love for the world, that he put him on a stick, he took the suffering of the world upon himself out of mercy and kindness for every single person on the earth. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish. God doesn't want people to suffer and die. God doesn't want to punish people. God doesn't want people to be condemned. But it's God's desire to give every person eternal life, and not just eternal life, but a good life, an abundant life. The Gospel of John is all about abundance. In the beginning of John's Gospel, John says that from the abundance of God, we received one blessing after another. In the person of Jesus, we have seen the unfailing love and mercy and goodness of God. And those who look upon him and believe in him will have eternal life, good life, living water, living bread, abundant goodness. Because God sent his son in the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And what compelled me by this was not the idea that I'd be judged, not the idea that I'd be condemned, but that God's love for me was powerful and incredible and that he loved me. I'd heard about the love of God, but I'd never applied it to me. I had parents who loved me, a mom and dad who loved me, provided for me, but I didn't see a lot of love in the rest of the world. I was trying to fit in like anybody else at the age of 15. And when I suddenly realized that God loved me that deeply and that he was about grace and mercy, I just was overwhelmed by it. I, I'd never never in my life heard of anything so amazing and so wonderful than the love of God. And so I just said, I want that. I said, I want a new life. I want forgiveness. I want grace. I want mercy. You know, I, I don't want to be religious. I want a relationship with you. Because before this, I thought that, that being a Christian was 
what you believed. And being a Christian meant church attendance. It meant being more moral, being a nice person, going to church. But I realized in hearing this story that it was more about a personal relationship, that God wanted me to have a good life. He cared about my life. He loved me. He wanted to expand my vision for the world. He wanted to give me a purpose. He wanted to give me a destiny. And his grace was so overwhelming that I didn't care I didn't care what anybody thought. I just, I just got down on my knees and said, I believe in you. Forgive me of my sins. I want new life. I want hope. And I remember I went back and I told my minister, I said to my pastor, who was a wonderful person, I said, I want to be baptized. He said, David, you've already been baptized once. I said, I know, but that was my parents' decision. This is my decision. I want to show the world that I believe in him. I want, to, I want the water of baptism to wash me and to give me a new life and to start over and to begin again. You know, at the age of 15, you don't have a lot to get washed away. You know, you don't have a lot of, a lot of things behind you. But I saw this as the beginning of my journey. And so at that moment, this is what my whole life has been about. My whole life has been about telling people about this love. It so deeply changed me and so deeply impacted my life that I said, I want to do my whole life to be about this one thing, is telling people that it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, his grace is here for you. And if you'll just look, look upon Jesus, my whole life is about lifting up Jesus so that people can see the love of God in him. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the Son of Man crucified on the cross for the sins of the world, the one who loves and forgives his enemies, the one who is for all people, the God who is a God of grace. That's what I want my life, my life to be about that's what I want to give you that invitation you know maybe you need new life maybe you need a fresh start maybe you need a new beginning maybe you need to start over maybe you don't feel loved I want to tell you it's there for you this is not what we're doing here is not about attendance it's not about becoming more religious it's about you knowing the God of the universe who's big and knows all things, but also knows you and knows your heart and knows your dreams. I want you to have that more than anything, anything in the world. So my friends, they told me this story, and it put me on this journey. And at the heart of the story is that, what does it mean to be born again? I have spent now 40 years thinking, I was 15 when I heard the story, I'm 55, I've been, I've been thinking about this. Let me stop here. I hope you heard that, what I just said. I hope our teenagers heard that this morning, that what Jesus has to offer you is this whole big, wide world of possibility that's better than any paycheck you'll ever earn, better than any career you could ever choose, but that God has this wonderful, wild world available to you that he wants to give to you and that he believes in you infinitely with grace and power so 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 i've been thinking about what it means to be born again and i want to take you i want to take you now and let's look at the story and uh, let me walk you through this and share a few things some of my current thinking about this um, so here's what the verse says beginning of chapter three it says there was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. This is an important detail. He belonged to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was a group of 71 men who were 
the ruling legal body that oversaw the people of Judah. This means he was an important religious figure, highly moral, highly educated, most likely very wealthy, and a very respectable person. He was also a Pharisee, which means that he took his religion very, very, very seriously. Now, this is an interesting statement. It says, after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, this is an important clue about who this man is. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. In the beginning of John's gospel, John talks about the difference between light and darkness. That Jesus is the light of God that shines into the world. And that there's no darkness that can overcome it. He says in the beginning, he said he came to his own people, but because his own people were living in darkness, they couldn't see that light. They couldn't see who he was. And so what he's saying is, here is a very religious person. Here is a very morally respectable person, but he's coming to me in the darkness. And that's where the title of this sermon came from, You Could Be Wrong. You could be wrong. When you read through the Bible, you see all these people in the Bible who had these very firm beliefs, who had memorized the Torah, who understood Scripture, who had these very fixed and rigid beliefs about what they believed, who had a lot of certainty, but who were wrong, who didn't understand. Real faith is not arriving at a greater deal of certainty about what you believe. Real faith is a fluid thing, not a fixed thing. I meet all the time people who approach the Bible like it's an owner's manual. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, and they can quote the Bible to you about a lot of things. And I want to say, but did it ever occur to you that maybe you were wrong? Because the reality is that no one person can hold all the truth. Your brain, my brain, is too small to hold and contain the infinite creator of the universe within our realm of thinking. God is bigger than your belief system. And we must hold on to our beliefs loosely and with a great deal of humility. Because faith is in God, not in a belief system. Faith is in God and not in the Bible. Faith is in God, the creator, the living God. Not a set of beliefs. And there are a lot of people walking around saying this group is in and this group is out because of what they believe. And I want to say when I hear that, you could be wrong. Someone said that to me recently about something I believe. They looked at me and said, David, what if you're wrong? And I looked at them and said, but what if you're wrong? The goal of faith, the goal of faith is not you arriving at some fixed belief system, but having a living relationship with God. And you can believe all the things in being a very religious person and completely be in the dark. So he says to him, Rabbi said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, this is an important clue here. Nicodemus is not coming searching for the truth. He's coming here to inspect Jesus 
whether Jesus has the truth or not. And when he says we, he's coming as a representative of the legal, religious, local, ministerial association, <laughs> wanting to check him out. I kind of believe that they chose him to say, okay, Jesus, we know you got a good thing going on here, you know, and if you'll, if you'll just sort of get in the fold with our camp, we'll help you out. Okay, we're here to check you out. We're making sure you got it all down pat and right. And this is what Jesus says to him. I love this. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. What John here is making a very big point is if you want to know what truth is, if you want to know what truth looks like, it's not a set of beliefs, it's Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus and the life of Jesus, his teachings represent the truth. And then he makes this powerful statement to him. He says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Don't miss the power of what he's saying. He's saying to this individual, he said, you got it all figured out. You got this whole belief system. But you got to be born again or you're never going to understand me. He's not just talking about going to heaven. He's saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, if you want to know, understand who I am and what I'm about in this world, you've got to let God's Spirit invade your life. You've got to let go of your certainty. You've got to be open to something new. And actually, the phrase here, born again, is it's kind of a, a strange phrase. I mean, born again or born from above. In other words, Nicodemus, you've got to be born from above. You, if you want to see who I am, you're going to have to have God's help to see me. You see, the thing I've learned about this phrase, being born again, it's not just about this invitation to eternal life. It's about the ability to begin to see where God is at work in the world. It's about opening your life up to the presence of God to gain some altitude, some perspective on who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Am I connecting with anybody this morning? Because I'm trying real hard, okay? You see, he goes on. He goes, what do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and being born again? Now, this is a great thing about John. You read John, and people are talking over here, and Jesus is over here, and they're talking on the physical level. He's talking on a spiritual level. Here's a religious man who's completely lost. He doesn't get it. And Jesus is trying to help him understand. And what I want you to see here in the story is, is a classic story from an old synagogue. Jesus is a rabbi. Nicodemus was a rabbi. What are they doing? They're arguing with one another. They're debating. The idea that you would be sitting in a room listening to one guy talk and not arguing with me is, is, is foreign. I mean, that's what it was then. Uh, Today, it's, I'm in a room and I'm talking to you, but that's not biblical. The model for Jesus today, everybody argued about stuff. This is a confrontation between Jesus and this guy. And he says, you must be born again. And Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. He's referring back to what John is saying about Jesus. We all have this physical birth. We're all born into this world. But when we open up our lives and our hearts to Jesus, we are born of the Spirit. We gain this altitude. We gain this new perspective. And he's saying to him, you got your whole system, what you believe, down. Will you open yourself up to something new? 
You'll never understand what the kingdom of God is like. You'll never understand me unless you allow some revelation into your heart and to your life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. You know what you means? It means you. It means everyone. You know what that means? He was a highly moral person. But he still needed it the same as anybody else, the same as the prostitute, same as the tax collector. What Jesus is making a profound point, it doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, how much money you make, how smart you are, how educated you are, where you've been, what mistakes you make, what kind of job you have. Everybody stands on the same ground before God in need of mercy and grace and kindness. And don't be surprised, he's telling this morally religious person. You must be born again. The other thing I'd point out to you, what this does not mean. Being born again does not mean becoming a more moral person. That's what we think it means. Because if I were to tell you that you have new neighbors and they're born again Christians, all of you would go, oh my God, I'm moving. That's terrible for me. Because most of us, when we think about being born again, we think of that religious stick in the mud, that holier-than-thou person who uses the Bible as a weapon to hurt people. But that's not what he's talking about here. Being born again means being seeing the world in a different way. It means allowing his spirit to enter into your life. And everyone needs it. Every one of us needs to be born again. And so here's what he says. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the spirit. He's saying to Nicodemus, look, this is something that God does. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not something that you can control or manage. It's not your possession. Your religious sect doesn't own the truth. It belongs to God. And God's the one in charge of it. God's the one that gives it. God's the one that does it. You got to let go of some control. And Nicodemus goes, how is this possible? And Jesus adds, replies, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. Okay, four points. But first, one nerd point. Okay, here's a nerd point. Okay, the nerd point is the Eastern Orthodox Church considered him a saint because Nicodemus was seen as a person growing in faith, moving from darkness to light. The Roman Catholic Church considered Nicodemus to be a scoundrel because they called him, an, they called people like Nicodemus a Nicodemite. You learned that today, okay? A Nicodemite. A Nicodemite is a person who has faith in Jesus but doesn't want to share it publicly. Interesting. They want to hide under the cover. Interesting. Here's another nerd fact. There's actually a gospel called the Gospel of Nicodemus. It was written in the 5th century. He didn't write it, but it's a really cool book if you want to get the hell scared out of you. <laughs> it's all about Jesus descending into hell and describes the crucifixion in gore, uh, graphic terms, meant as a motivational evangelistic piece. That's another nerd fact. Uh, uh, cool stuff. Cool stuff. Okay, back to the point. I'm going off here chasing a rabbit. Okay, number one. <laughs> number one point, after 40 years of thinking about this, hold your beliefs loosely because you could be wrong. The essence of following Jesus is following Jesus. Following Jesus, not just 
holding on to a set of beliefs. Sometimes people say, well, what does the Christian church disciples of Christ believe in? That's not the right question. What does their church believe? That's not the right question. Our church isn't based on a set of beliefs. It's based on a relationship with Jesus. That's what our church is based on. You could be wrong. The second thing is we must be born again and again. It's not a one and done. Okay? I was born again at 15, but I'm still being born again. It's an evolving thing. Look at this sculpture. This was carved by Michelangelo. And it was meant to be placed on his tomb. The person standing behind Jesus is Nicodemus, holding the body. I love this because if you read in John chapter 7, which the scripture I referred to earlier, you'll see that Nicodemus defends Jesus when Jesus is being criticized. Then after the crucifixion, he comes out of the darkness into the light, and he is with Joseph of Arimathea, and he helps Jesus down from the cross and helps prepare him for burial and provides the, the expensive spices to properly bury Jesus. What this means is that, that faith is an evolving thing. We're born again and again. There's lots of turning points in life, and faith is meant to be fluid and not fixed. Interestingly enough about this statue is that if you look at the face of Nicodemus, it is a self-portrait of Michelangelo. And the reason he wanted it on his tomb was because of his own struggle, and it was because of his own struggle with um, religion and faith. He saw Michelangelo was a big critic of the church because Michelangelo saw the horrors and the abuses of institutional religion, but at the same time had this personal faith. He actually got real frustrated. This is a frustrated at the, end of the, at the end of his life. It took him eight years to make it. Then he got so mad and frustrated, he broke all the arms off, and it had to be put back together. It's kind of like faith, isn't it? Uh, we grow, we come apart, we grow, we come apart. So we're born again, again. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. The third thing is we should argue with one another consistently. We should be arguing and debating. The idea that you would go to a place of worship and hear one guy talk to you and everybody listen and not disagree and you just you do what I say and you believe what I say is true, that's a totally unbiblical concept that does not reflect first century Christianity. The synagogues were a place of rigorous debate where people came with different points of view and different interpretations of Scripture. There was not one correct interpretation of the Torah, the Scripture. They argued their way to belief and faith. The sign of a healthy, healthy uh, religious life is that you're around people who disagree with you. If you only hang out with people who look like you, we'll never have a God any bigger than you. It would be a dwarf faith. This is what I love about our church. That's why freedom of belief is a core value. It is a core value because we believe that a diversity of thought and opinion is important. 
because it's how we grow. It's how we reason. So let this be a church where we argue with one another. The fourth is we got to gain some altitude. We're living in the, was it, is this the 21st century or the 20th? I'm getting older. I don't even know. Is this the 21st century? It's the 21st century. We're 21st century people. And we, we read the Bible. We have no idea about the word of the Bible, the world of the Bible. And then we read it, and we want to literally apply it to other people's lives. We don't have enough information about first century Christianity to condemn another person's life or lifestyle based on what we think we know. we got to gain a larger perspective. We're walking around like this. we got to do this. And then we've got to get other hands on the Bible, more people together, reading together, talking about it, digging deeply, gain some altitude. And what I mean by that is that's what it means in this story. To be born from above. The Holy Spirit. To be born from above means to allow God's presence and spirit in us. I don't have the truth. Jesus is the truth. He'll teach me. I'm firmly convinced that if we will come here together as a church and we'll be open and we'll debate, we'll talk, we'll argue, we open ourselves up, you know what's going to happen? People are going to be born again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and what a great ride it's going to be. You know, that's just the kind of church the world's looking for. A world, a church where people with differences of opinion learn to serve God together and believe that God's mercy and grace is bigger than our beliefs. And if we're going to be wrong, let us be wrong on the side of grace and mercy, the side of the one that sent Jesus into the world not to condemn it, but to show it what real love is like. Man, I'm so glad I met those three guys who got me started on this journey. I don't have much else to say.